My name's Nick. If I if I haven't met you, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. I'm happy to get us into God's Word, checking the time, seeing how we're doing. We actually had a lot there, but we're making uh, good time here. So um, I guess I'll, I'll I'll get us right in. I don't, I don't have much for you other than just to say, yeah, I'd encourage you, please pray about um, volunteering with the kids' ministry. I hope with that, really, we put a lot of, of energy and time into... Um, the training and things. Our, our hope is to equip um, anyone who would come in, in, through those doors to be more, um, I suppose, skilled at sharing the gospel. We all want to. We all want to grow in communicating our faith, and it's a wonderful opportunity to start to learn about how what might this look like to talk about Jesus or to teach from the scriptures or that sort of thing. There are various roles and various ways you can participate in that and start to get familiar with that. But what a great mission field to start to to learn those things, and we'd love to partner with you in that. Um, but with that being said, you can open up your Bibles, Luke chapter twelve. Uh, we're just right at the beginning. First seven verses is what we're going to be looking at. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, we'll get one to you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. But uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. I'll give you a moment to get there. We'll read it, pray, and uh, dive right in. This is honestly pretty, I mean, all the Bible is amazing. All the Bible is incredible. This text is, in particular, stunning. I think you'll see it even as we read it, um, and hopefully even more so as we go. Verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he... Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many. Sparrows. Let's pray. God, we gather again trembling underneath your word. There's no one in here with authority in and of themselves, myself included. Any authority I have as a pastor in this church is derived from your authority. And I only have it in so far as I fall in line with what you have revealed to your people in your word. So God, I pray that you would make your word plain to us this morning. I pray that you would 
release the hound of heaven like we've talked about in weeks past, I recall. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, pursuing his people like a hound. (laughs) Even as they run to sin and run to idols and run to false gods, you pursue. And I pray you do that again this morning for us. Go after the waywardness in us, Lord. Go after us even in our wandering. Go after our secret sins, our hidden places. And bring these things out into the light, not to shame, but to heal us, God. Lord, I pray that you would show us what it means to be both afraid of you and all of you, amazed at who you are, terrified like John laying dead on the floor in the book of Revelation, and yet also a friend of you, a close and intimate companion, child of the living King. Teach us what it means to be afraid and a friend through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in your name I ask these things, God. Amen. Um, I don't have any cute sort of introduction for you this morning. I'm just simply going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you it. Okay. Nothing cute, nothing fancy. Let me just get us right in. I'm going to organize my thoughts this morning under just two headings. One, afraid of God, verses 1 through 5. And then two, a friend of God, verses 6 through 7. It's my contention, and it's what I'm seeing from this text here this morning, that a Christian, a disciple of Christ is in some strange, surprising way supposed to be both afraid of God in one sense and a friend of God in yet another. The two ideas, though seemingly opposing to us, are brought together in a surprising unity in this little tight, compact space of a few verses. And I don't think we're intended to see one at odds with the other, but them working together in the mind of Christ in the framework of our faith as we follow Jesus. I actually think that these two ideas, being afraid of God and a friend of God, are are not at odds with one another, but instead they actually would keep us balanced. They're actually, when we kind of understand how they fit together, it keeps us sane. It keeps us right in a world gone wrong. If that doesn't make sense to you yet, I hope by the end of this message you'll be saying yes and amen. So let's dive in. First heading then, afraid of God, verses 1 through 5. Now, Before we can really dive into these first five verses, we need to remember the context. 
um, teach through the Bible verse by verse, little by little, and we can sometimes forget that what we're reading today is connected to what came last week, connected what uh, connected to what will come next week, and so on. So sometimes it's especially important for me to stop for a moment and go, do you remember where we're at in the story, in the narrative? Um, and it's going to play an important part in us understanding what's happening today. So let me remind you that from Luke 11... Chapter 11, verse 14 on, Jesus has, has been engaged in conflict with the religious leaders in Israel. Remember, he casts out a demon, and they're going, that wasn't, that wasn't from God. You're just casting out Satan by Satan. And it starts this whole discussion with Jesus and these, these men in Israel. And last week in particular, verses 37 to 52, we saw how uh, um, there, Jesus is basically going to call out these guys for their, what I call, duplicity. They're kind of double. They're, 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 there's two of them. There's an exterior they're presenting and then an interior that they're hiding. In our text, he calls it hypocrisy, the same idea. There's a mask that you're wearing. You're presenting one thing, but then on the inside, there's another. So this conflict moves from kind of a debate back and forth to then Jesus calling these guys out. Saying, listen, you guys look alive, but you're dead. You look holy, but you're filthy. You love the show, but there's nothing behind the curtain. You make it look like you want to counsel and care for the people of God, for my people. And yet truly... You're consuming them. As he would say in other places, these guys are like wolves in sheep's clothing. They look soft. They look cuddly. They look like they're going to care for you truly. They are waiting for the opportunity to eat you, to consume you. They are looking for their gain, looking for their own glory. And they're using the church platform to do it. So he's going to call these guys out. He's going to confront them. That's what verses 37 to 52 were all about in chapter 11 as we're making our way towards chapter 12. And because he steps in the gap for us, for his disciples, and communicates this against the religious leaders of the day, they don't like him. They don't like it one bit. In fact, verses 53 to 54, right before our text, say, okay, well, now these guys are, uh, they didn't like Jesus before. Now they're lying in wait. They're just looking for the opportunity to catch and kill him. So that's the context of uh, um, right before our text this morning. And now here's what happens. To kind of make the transition for you, help you see what's going on, let me remind you what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 18, and I'll skip to 20 after that. He says this, if the, wor- if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Context, they're starting to hate Jesus. Transition to our text, they're going to start hating his disciples now as well. And so Jesus shifts his focus to his disciples to communicate, to prepare them for the conflict that is coming. Those who want to 
catch me, persecute me, kill me, will want to do the same to those who follow me. Now let me warn you. Let me, let me put some steel in your spine. Let me, let me strengthen you for the conflict that's coming. That's the context for verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12. So now we turn uh, to verse 1. Jesus is going to speak to them. He's going to prepare them for what is coming. And here's what we read. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. I actually wanted to stop there. You know me. I love to chew on every word in the scriptures. And I just, that, that word first jumped out at me. I loved it. And I wanted you to be encouraged by it. <laughs> it says, there's this whole crowd. There's so many people. They're trampling on one another. They want to see what's coming next with Jesus. And they're intrigued by, by the miracles and the power and the teaching and the confrontation. Wow, it's a good show. There's all sorts of people around. And Jesus goes, okay, 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 okay. I got some things to say. And I want to say it to you guys first. My disciples. And I just thought, man, what, what an amazing thing to consider. The privileged place that you and I enjoy as followers of Christ. That yes, to the crowds and the masses hear something of his word and hear something of his wisdom. Sure, from time to time. Do they see something of his power and his, and his authority and his miracles? Sure, from time to time. But not in the way that his disciples do. He draws us in close. And he speaks to us in those moments when we need it the most. So just encourage you. I just encourage you. God's line is always, is always, it's never busy. His door is always open. His light is always on. There's this idea that Jesus in particular has you and I on his heart. So he draws us in close. He began to say to his disciples first. Keep reading. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So Jesus is saying here, essentially, look out for these duplicitous, hypocritical men. They will try to catch you in their schemes as well. They will try to get you to play ball in the same way that they play. So now Jesus turns from rebuking the culprits themselves to warning his disciples whom he loves. He wants to see them free from this sort of uh, thing. Now, on these verses, let me bring out a couple of observations at this point. Observation number one. I'm not going to linger on these too long, but I did at least want to say something. Uh, a sin is like leaven, he says. I think we need to get a hold of that image for a moment. You caught that, right? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, this hypocrisy and this sin. It's like leaven. Now, a lot of us don't really probably cook with that sort of thing anymore. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with what it is. But the idea is you take a little bit of leaven, you put it in a lump of dough, and over time it permeates the whole thing, causes it to ferment and rise. 
It's a good thing on Thanksgiving Day or, you know, and you smell it coming out of the oven. Bread is wonderful, but when Jesus uses it here, he's talking about the reality that sin has this sort of deceptive, insidious, corrupting influence. It begins small. It begins with these little things. You hardly even notice it. And then before time, it's kind of permeated and corrupted the whole. That's the idea of leaven. What we have to understand, and you see it plainly in places like we looked last week, Genesis 3 and the fall of man, is that, is that Satan doesn't typically just kind of uh, open up the full catalog of evil and say, come on in. He actually typically will hide the evil under, go- under the good, under the disguise of good. Everything is counterfeit with Satan. If we were to study the book of Revelation, that is what you would see clear as day all over the place in the images that are used. Everything that God has, Satan tries to counterfeit. It's a half-truth. It looks good, but it's wicked inside. There's something wrong with it. He's getting us to take the bait and get in a little deeper. And that's how it's going to work. That's how men and women fall. That's how this works in your own life. It starts with little compromises, with little little moments. Of just, eh, no big deal, no big deal. And before you know it, you're in the thick of a wickedness you would never have imagined on the outset. And you find yourself in places, you go, how in the world did I get here? Well, Jesus is telling us how that happens. Leaven. Like leaven, a little bit that slowly permeates and corrupts the whole. Looks good, maybe, hardly noticeable, no big deal. Before you know it, it's killed you. I wonder if you have something of this leaven in your own life even now. And we've been we've been kind of drilling into this week by week as Jesus has and I think it's important. I don't think this is a one-off message for us to consider. I think every week we are tempted to sin. We are tempted to hush it up, keep it quiet. We're tempted to make compromise. It's happening in this room right now. No doubt in my mind. So let me ask you at least to consider, is there leaven? Is there a place where you're going, ah, yeah, I know that the word of God says this, but really I've seen good scholars who can do this with the Greek and make it mean that, and really I'm not so sure it should mean that. Uh, yeah, I'll come around to what God asked me to do later. And uh, mm, 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 mm. Jesus is saying, beware of that mentality. Because the way that leaven works, it's not something that can be tamed and kept in one spot. It's not something that you can just kind of play around with and it stays in this little neutral zone out here and you can get rid of it when you want. It is an active force that is moving to permeate, penetrate, corrupt the whole. And so insofar as you're playing with it, it's not playing with you. My encouragement would be to take Jesus' warning seriously and put it out. Now, observation number two. Hypocrisy is hopeless. That's the other piece that you could really draw from Jesus' words in verses 1 through 3. Hypocrisy is hopeless. It doesn't pay off in the end. There's this sort of allure to hypocrisy if you're in the church or you're these kind of religious leaders. and They look good on the outside. They can fool men for quite a while, maybe even for their entire earthly lives, but they have never fooled God. 
God was never confused about the state of their heart. Or their righteousness. God was never impressed. God was never pleased. He saw through the show to the heart and was aware that these men were consuming. Self-glorifying. No love for God. No love for others there. So hypocrisy in the end is hopeless because God takes what we keep in the dark and he brings it into the light. That's what judgment day is. It's him saying, okay, here were the kings of the earth. Here were the people that were supposedly righteous. Here were the people that, let's show you what they really were. Behind all the facade, let's show you what they really were. You saw that, right? There's this idea of the inside coming out. What you come to find out is that empty religion in this way is, 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 is a fool's errand. It's cosmetics on a corpse, right? It's only a matter of time before the thing starts to stink and everybody smells it. So it may pay in the immediate, may feel good to get the pats on the back, but you miss the praise of God for eternity and that the light of your father is the praise of man worth that. If we're honest, uh, Jesus' language here is frightening. Sometimes you just have to go, wow, did he really say that? This is scary. And this verse 3 isn't even the most frightening verse in this text. But if you look, he says this. He's not just talking about the religious leaders there in verse 3 and their issues, which would feel nice. We could all join in on that. Yeah, bring their junk to light. Woo! Expose them. All of a sudden, he starts using the second person here. He starts talking about you, disciples, you and I. Wait, I thought we were talking about them, they, not you, you. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Is there anybody that wants to embroider that verse on their pillow? I mean, think, think about it for a moment, though. Think about it. Think about what you have said in the dark. Think about what you've whispered in private rooms. Now think about that being made public knowledge. Like someone's been bugging your house, and they just decide, hey, show up at church one Sunday, instead of... Uh, Instead of, you know, a nice little image or an announcement or a little video about a mission trip. But hey, I got some audio video on, you know, this member over here or that person over here. And we start running your stuff. The stuff that turns in the secret chambers of your heart. The stuff that you wouldn't want anybody to know. It's coming out to light. It's being made public knowledge. The way you talk to your spouse or your kid or your roommate or what. The way even you think, like God knows the thoughts of our hearts. And that stuff's just going to be exposed. All of a sudden, it's being shouted from the rooftops. Go, man, get that back in the closet where it belongs. With the rest of my skeletons. It's enough to humble you to the ground. The thought. Of the inside coming out. And I think that's the point. What he's trying to say is what I've said now 
hopefully drafting on his thought for, for weeks, is, is, is this. Stop it with the show. Like it may impress people for a little while, but it doesn't impress God. And that's the audience that matters most. Stop it with the show and let's be honest. Let me make something plain at this point that I don't want us to think, to to get confused on. Jesus is not saying that a Christian is, like we talked about last week, fully integrated through and through. That the inside, hey, yeah, go ahead, roll that, you know, play that uh, video. They're going to find just righteousness and purity here. I'm a Christian. No. We're not talking about being perfect. Jesus is not talking about being perfect. What he is talking about is Christians are going to be honest. Believers, followers of Christ are those who are done trying to, they're no longer interested in presenting something externally that's not true of them. It doesn't matter as much anymore because we have the affirmation, the love, the forgiveness of God so we can come out with stuff that most everyone else would never think to put on their news feed, on their Facebook newsreel or whatever, right? We don't want that stuff to be seen. Christians not scared of it. It's lost its teeth. We can be honest and open. So the idea is not that we're perfect. The idea is that it, it no longer scares us to share. We would say, yes and amen, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Because here's what we come to find out. As we express our sin and confess these things, as we talk about uh, not just our big wins, but our weaknesses, and our tremblings and our fears and all these things, what the end result is, is not it's not detracting from the glory of God. It actually serves to, to, to elevate Him even more because it provides a platform whereby He can be known uh, as the Savior that He truly is. As the good God that he truly is. This is why Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, comes out from this discussion with Jesus basically saying, I would rather boast in my weaknesses. Because I know that it's in my weaknesses and it's in my frailties and it's because of my sins and all these things that Jesus and his power can be made known. As people look in on my life and go, Paul didn't do that. I know his name used to be Saul. I know what he used to do. Paul didn't do this. God did. Jesus did. And if he could do it with a guy like Paul, maybe he could do it with us too. That's the idea. And so long as we try to present we're somebody better, something you know, set apart from everyone else, we actually end up gutting the gospel we try to proclaim. They feel like they can't be, uh, they can't access the same God that we do because they're not good enough. We say, no, the God of grace accesses you. He comes to you. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. I'll open that and share that with you. But the end result is, let's together see how great the Savior is who says, it's finished and I'm forgiven. Well, let's put you back together from the inside out. Shoot, did I say I wasn't going to take long on this? Okay, let's move forward. As we progress in our text, Jesus' discussion rightly turns towards this idea now of fear. Five times in the next four verses, I wonder if you noticed it, he speaks of fear directly. 
And I think in some ways he has set us up well for this transition in the discussion that's about to follow. Here's what I mean. Fear is now kind of a, a natural thing that's going to be on the disciples' minds. It's probably what they're already starting to experience in their hearts. Because Jesus has just said, listen, okay, you know the religious leaders in Israel? Yeah, I'm calling you to beware of them and stand against them for the truth. And yeah, I know I've told you that they are going to kill me when I get to Jerusalem. And yeah, they might kill you too. So fear, no doubt, is what the disciples were probably feeling in these moments. That would be one reason why we start to move towards this discussion. But Jesus has set us up in yet another way as well for what he's about to say. Because what he's also started to hint at is the fact that ultimately fearing these men is foolish. Because these men too will answer to a higher power, namely God. God will expose the game that they're playing. God will make all things right. So not only do we have then the subject of fear, but now we start to have hints towards the proper object of fear. Not man, but God. That sets up where we're going now in verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. Stop it for a moment. He's saying, can the Pharisee and their crew, can these guys harm you? Yes, and they will, and it will hurt. But then he says, but there's nothing to be afraid of there. And he says, okay, you want to talk about what we should really be afraid of? Let's read verse 5. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, at, who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And just to be clear, we're not talking about Satan. Satan also will be thrown into hell. Read Revelation 20. It's God. It's the judgment day. It's everyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life. Not covered with the blood and forgiven. Trying to play the game up to the very end. And they will pay for it forever. He says, fear God. The logic is, you think those guys are scary because they can kill your body. Have you met my father? I mean, that, the logic is, you think they are scary. You haven't met God yet. Because he has authority not just to kill your body, but to throw your soul into hell forever. Just as we kind of descend into a depression here, let me take us deeper. The word Jesus uses, translated hell, there in our text, in the Greek is Gehenna. Gehenna. It's related to, it's derived from the Hebrew that means the Valley of Hinnom. And there's a historical background to this. Some of you may know it, but it's worth thinking about at least for a moment because it would have been a vivid picture to these men. 
as he explained what God has the authority to do. And as he tries to direct their fear away from men to its proper object. The Valley of Hinnom was a valley adjacent to Jerusalem where in earlier days the Jews, the, the kings of Israel and things uh, would, would actually sacrifice their children to a false god by the name of Molech. They would offer up their kids to a false god in this valley of Hinnom. King Josiah was a stud. When he takes the throne, he puts an end to this. And he declares, man, that valley and then thereafter is considered cursed. There ain't no place to be, there ain't no place to hang out. In fact, now what we know is in Jesus' day, it was a rubbish heap. It was a place where people would bring their trash and even they would bring criminals that had been killed or whatever. And they would burn these things in this valley. And uh, it's supposed that there the fires probably were continually burning. One commentator writes, the term Gehenna could not have a more grisly or more dishonorable association. And brothers and sisters, Jesus picks that as the image for hell, for what God can do, what God has the right to do as a holy and just judge. When sinners stand before him. Now, you say, stepping back from this for a moment, Nick, I thought you made the case that all of this whole conversation between Jesus and his disciples, like he brings them in close to care for them, <laughs> and give them a word, a little pep talk, because the struggle's coming. Nick, I thought you said this was supposed to be about encouragement. And preparing them for what's the conflict that is coming and emboldening them and putting steel in their spine, making them strong. I thought you said they were supposed to be lifted up. I feel like I just want to crawl into a hole and hide from a God this terrifying. Like, think about it for a moment. If you're afraid, if people are out to kill you and I'm trying to find a way to comfort you, I don't think I'm playing this card. I don't think I'm saying, ah, yeah, I mean, I know that that's scary. I know that that's hard. That stinks to have somebody, you know, with a gun outside your door. Yeah. But God can throw you into hell. You go, gee, thanks. Um, I'm never coming to you for counsel again. I don't think I could pull that off. But Jesus is Jesus. He doesn't miss the mark. He doesn't mix up his words. He knows what he's after. He knows what we really need. So what in the world is he after? What is it that we really need? Well, he's actually tapping into here, I think, one of the richest traditions in, in the Old Testament. Namely, the fear of the Lord. There's so much we could do with this concept but I will simply take you to probably what is the high watermark, maybe the most uh, uh, radiant example or illustration of this idea in the Old Testament, probably one many of us are familiar with, coming from Proverbs 9.10. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not depression, discouragement, despair, 
you know, tuck my head between my legs and cry, wait for the storm to get over. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of life. You may not know how the verse continues, but it's wonderful. It says this, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The point in this text in Proverbs, I think, is that you can't even begin to see rightly about the world, about yourself, about circumstances, and all these things, until you see God for who He is. Then you start to see everything else in light of that, and it all starts to come into place. You have the fear of the Lord. You see Him as holy. You see His place way over you in the universe. Way over every circumstance and struggle you have. You see his, his, his holiness and, and how you as a sinner don't belong anywhere near. You see who he is, who you are. Things fall into place. You start to get a heart of wisdom. You start to get insight into what's really going on, into what you really need. And how things really work. Because we're always so prone to exalt ourselves. We're always so prone to make a big deal about our circumstances, this present moment. We're always, want, we're always kind of making this life here and now way more ultimate, way more maximal than it really is. That's what we do. We spend our time just digging in and worrying all these things and making this huge deal out of what when we consider God. When we come into his courts and we behold who he is. It's really a small thing. It's really a little thing. It's really something that he can handle. We get realigned, we get reoriented, we come back to sanity. I remember when I was in college, um, Francis Chan, some of you may know him, he... I don't know if he was as big of a celebrity pastor then or whatever. So he came into our like campus crusade and he spoke. And uh, as he often did uh, when I've heard him speak, he uh, at that time he had a prop that he brought with him. Yeah, maybe I should do that here. Um, but he he brought in this massively long rope. I'm talking like the thing filled the auditorium. Okay. Like, it was just snaking through every... What in the... First of all, that must have cost... This better be worth it. Like, I don't, uh, and then second of all, what in the world is this guy doing? Who, who is this guy? I don't even remember if I was a believer at the time. But I remember what he said. So he had this long rope, and, and, and at the very, very end of the rope, he, he, he had kind of like wrapped, I think it was like red tape or something around it, just a few inches at the very tip of this mile-long rope. And I remember all going, what is going on? And he pulls up this little, this little red side of the, uh, of, of the rope, and he looks at us, looks at it, and he says, listen, this is your life here and now. The Bible says you are a vapor, that it just vanishes just as quickly as it appears. That you are like grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Maybe even gone this afternoon. This is your life. These few inches. This is your life here and now. This is what you make such a massive deal about. And, and, and build everything for. And, and gear everything around and towards. And think and worry and work. This is what it's all about. 
And yet, that's your life hereafter. Eternity. Here and now, vapor. There and then, forever. And he says, what you're going to do with these few moments here, with this little blip here, decides in an ultimate way what will happen here. If you're in this little red zone here, go, man, it's all about getting the praise of man. It's all about getting people to like me. It's all about getting mine and mine and mine and making my, you know, whatever, building my castle up. Then you are setting yourself up for disaster forever. When you stand before a holy God without Christ, without forgiveness, without having shown a lick of interest in the provision God has made for you in Him. But if you're here and you're a man, what's this life? What's the praise of man? So fickle. What's the worst that the rejection of man can do to me? And maybe they can get a hold of my neck and kill me. Maybe. But even if they do, there's this poem by George Herbert where he he talks about death now because of the gospel. It's not an executioner anymore. It's a gardener. It just brings in something better. When you know Christ through the gospel, (laughs) when somebody kills you, if we really believe this, it's not the worst news in all the world. It actually moves you to the best place in all the world. Now, I'm not saying go looking to get killed. I'm just saying don't be afraid. How silly is it to get all worked up about someone who can hurt you here when there is a reality for eternity and you're not right with that God, with that being. Get your priorities straight is the idea. And I think Jesus is trying to bring us to something like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See who he is and who you really are and start to work with that. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what he's trying to set these guys' eyes on. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, point number two. A friend of God. Verses six to seven. A friend of God. The fear of the Lord is a much richer idea than just being terrified of him. Much richer in the Old Testament. There are texts that say, uh, um, there is forgiveness with you, O Lord. I think this is Psalm 130. There is forgiveness with you, O Lord, that you may be feared. So in other words, because you're gracious, fear also is involved in understanding your forgiveness and your love. And that's what Jesus starts to move us towards here. It's not just this sort of being scared into submission that Jesus is talking about. That's not the fullest sense of the term. He won't let us think that it is. And that's why he moves seamlessly, without even stuttering. From this idea of being afraid of God to the idea of being a friend of God. I mean, it occurred to me as I was reading this and thinking on this text, I think what we have here is, is Jesus going from perhaps some of the most terrifying verses in all the Bible, verses 4 through 5, to perhaps some of the most comforting, verses 6 and 7. And you just got to step back and go, how are these things kept together? What an amazing thing. We'll get there. We'll get there.
first, let me look at um, what he says in, in verses 6 and 7. I suppose before I do that, let me at least say one more thing. If you were reading carefully, if you were listening carefully, perhaps you were already anticipating Jesus' transition to this idea of friendship or the love of God or his care for us. To go from the terrifying prospect of being thrown into hell to the unbelievably astounding prospect of being cared for by this holy God. Perhaps you were already prepared for this because you saw him hint back at the beginning of verse 4. I wonder if you caught it. I tell you, my friends, he says. It's the only place in all the synoptic gospels where Jesus calls his disciples friends. And it happens right before he says, your God can send you into hell. You go, what's that? He's hinting at where he's going. When he talks about the fear of God, he puts it within the context of friendship with God. He's trying to get us to see the full-orbed reality of who God is so that we have the fear of the Lord in the full biblical sense. Here's who he is, the full array of his glory. Here's who I am in light of it. So we've already seen, therefore, that God is great and sovereign and holy and just. But now Jesus wants us to see that God is also good and gracious and compassionate and tender. That he takes all of his terrifying might and marshals it in love for his children. We've already seen that we are nothing, just grass, a vapor. We're sinners. We have all this yuck inside of us and he's going to expose it and all of these things that sound scary. But now we come to the stunning reality that though we are nothing in and of ourselves, we are at the same time precious and valuable to him. Like you are valuable to him. Not because of what you bring to the table. But because of his love. Grace. It's amazing. So what Jesus hinted at, back at the beginning of verse 4, he is now about to make abundantly plain in verses 6 through 7. Look at these verses now. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. The flow of his thought is astounding. But focusing in on these verses for a moment, uh, Jesus is trying to get this idea of friendship drilled into our guts by using uh, what we've called before, and he often does this, so it comes up regularly, uh, lesser to greater reasoning or argumentation. There's two examples of this sort of lesser to greater reasoning happening in our verses here. I wonder if you notice he's talking about follicles, and he's talking about sparrows. And he's trying to get at the point that he loves and values you. But look at those one at a time. The first idea there in verse 7, that the, God numbers the hairs of your head. God numbers the hairs of your head. He says, now, <laughs> the thought occurred to me that for some guys, it's like, well, God's job is pretty easy, and it's getting easier by the day, right? <laughs> like there's maybe a few left up there, God hanging on for dear life. But you get the point that he's making, I think, although perhaps even still we don't. So our culture probably actually places an inordinate kind of value on hair, right? 
We might miss what Jesus is after in our culture because we need to get the right cut. We need to get the right product. We need to get the right coloring, whatever. We make a big deal out of hair, but the idea here is that hair is, is insignificant. It is nothing. Like, it's just falling out all the time. Listen, I live with, I didn't know this until I now have three girls in my house with very long hair. And I am constantly pulling hair out of my shirts. Like, how did, how did this thing get in here? Or we have like a Roomba. If you have one of those Roombas, you guys, they're amazing. You have people over at your house a lot like we do. It's very helpful. Hit the Roomba until Levi gets on it, tries to ride it around the house. But it never fails. You go to, you go to like empty the thing and I'm like, how is there all this hair? Just falling out everywhere uh, as we just kind of walk or brush or do whatever we're doing. And the point is here, according to Jesus, God knows every strand in that Roomba. He knows every strand that gathers at the, the bottom of your shower drain. He knows the insignificant little tiny details of your life, lesser to greater. Therefore, how much more does he know the big stuff that you're dealing with? How much more is he able to wrap his omniscience and his omnipotence around that for your good? That's observation or example number one. Let me give you the second Talking about sparrows. Now I know he shows up first in verse 6, but because he wraps back around to that at the end of verse 7, I thought we'd take sparrows second. Verse 6, he says, listen, about these sparrows, not one of these sparrows is forgotten. Like sparrows in the marketplace, five of them go for two pennies. Insignificant. He says, not one of them is forgotten. It was really interesting. I love when God does this. I was reading through uh, Genesis in my devotions and I came to Genesis 8 this last week and uh, it's when Noah's in the ark with all these animals and the floods and waters have risen and they're kind of going, what in the world is going on? And then Genesis 8, 1 says this. It's incredible. But God remembered Noah. You say, okay, good, yeah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. I thought, wow, what an amazing thing. I don't think I would ever caught that if I weren't thinking about God not forgetting sparrows. But he remembers even the animals. And with the idea of sparrow, it's this idea that he remembers even the least of the animals. I mean, to put some flesh on this for us, okay, if these things are worth a couple pennies, let me ask you a question. When you see a penny on the ground, do you even think twice anymore? Am I going to stop and pick that up or do you just walk on by? Like, what good is a penny for Anymore. Am, I, am I wrong? Maybe if you had a little purse, you'd see a point or something. You have a, like, I'm, I mean, confession, I don't even, I hardly stoop for a nickel or a dime anymore. Now, a quarter might get me to go down. <laughs> but you get what he's saying with this idea of, of, of pennies, things that are just worth so little. He's saying, we go, man, that's not valuable. That's not worth anything. That's not worth my time. It's not worth the germs I'm going to get just picking it up. He goes, it's worth it to me. I don't forget about that. I care for the spirit. I care for things just worth a couple pennies. I care. It's worth it to me. Lesser to greater. Verse 7. He comes out saying, fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. 
The point is, if God cares for these little things, if he stoops down to pick up a penny, how much more is he going to put his hand under your head at night when you lie there crying about the stuff you have to face? And the difficulties and the struggles, how much more is he going to be there in those moments for you? He is going to be there. He cares. He values you. So what we come to understand, and I'm going to start to wrap it up here. What we come to understand then is that the fear of God is not contrary to friendship with God, nor is being a friend of God contrary to being afraid of him. But the two somehow come together in a surprising unity. And the result is actually a sanity. Let me tell you something, though. It is only Christianity that can keep these two realities about God together. Every other religion, every other philosophy is going to spiral off in one direction or the other. Either God is transcendent, he is altogether separate, he is scary, a bit frightening. Don't you ask him for too much, he's way out there. Or, he is too close. He's no longer holy, he's just kind of one of us. He's a part of the creation, or he's, he's just kind of here, ethereal, but he's not really there and, and far off and above us. And it's kind of this casual, nice, mystic, spiritual thing. But Christianity is the only one that can keep both the transcendence and the imminence of God together, both the greatness and the goodness, both his farness and his nearness. Christianity is the only one. Why? Because Christianity is the only faith that has a cross. It is at the cross where these two, the, 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 the scary, frightening Holiness of God, greatness of God, and the unbelievable, unspeakable goodness and grace of Him kiss and come in most climactic merger. It is at the cross that we see there is no one more holy, there is no one more just, no one more wrathful, rightly so, no one more furious. No one more set apart than God. How do we see that? When my sin was put on the Son, He pours out His fury on Him. The judgment I deserve, I witness as I look at the cross. But don't you see how we get to the other side of it? I don't just see fury. I don't just see holiness. I don't just see, man, I deserve to be thrown into hell. I see, no, a God who throws His Son into the flames in my place. Remember what I said about the Valley of Hinnom? It's where the kings and the people of Israel would sacrifice their sons to false gods. Well, God on the cross lays his son down, throws his son into the flames, sacrifices his son for you and I. So we see at the cross not only that we ought to fear God for his holiness and his greatness, but we also see how the way of friendship was made for us. I call you friends, Jesus would say. Why? Because I will take everything about you that made you an enemy of my God and I will pay for it on the cross. Judgment day comes early for the Christian because it came for Christ at Calvary. Isn't that amazing? So for the person 
who spends his time abiding and, and, and looking and gazing upon the cross, a surprising balance is kept in their life. And that's what I want you to get. This is where I want to leave you. God is not, on the one hand, just a teddy bear. We kind of come and hug for a little comfort when we want, but obeying him, following him, there's no real reason to do that. He's gracious and it's all good. No. The person who abides by the cross sees, whoa, I'm not just a friend of God. I also ought to have a healthy fear. Beware of the leaven. Beware of, be, be afraid of the real things to be afraid of. Sin and judgment. But then on the other side of it, there are some of us who might be more prone to kind of feeling like God is against us, condemning us. He doesn't, he's too far away from us. He doesn't want to have anything to do with us. And we won't be allowed to stay there either if you abide by the cross. Because there you see, wow, he loves me. He puts his hand under the sparrow. He's numbered the hairs of my head. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He loves me. Now the end result of all of this then, this discussion with Jesus and our discussion here this morning, is that fearing God should lead to a fearless life. When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Because along with it comes the friendship of God. And when you know the friendship of God, you no longer tremble before your enemies. Romans 8 is just a massive exposition of this very point. What's the worst they're going to do? Kill you? He says, we're being led like sheep to the slaughter. You're going to face sword, famine, tribulation. It's going to get bad, but nothing can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So we are, when we have the fear of the Lord, we fear nothing else. When we have the friendship of God, even our enemies serve his ends for our good. The image that I had, I think it comes from Malachi that, We could walk out of this room, not just kind of, you know, oh, all right, that was a decent Sunday service. Okay, let's go get on with our lunch or whatever. We ought to skip out of this room like calves being released from the stall. Knowing that our Father cares for us, that everything that's wrong is going to be made right. That this little, these few inches of a life are leading into a mile long of glory, if you will. Because of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that we can hold together both your greatness and goodness because of the cross. That your greatness, while we are health, in a healthy way afraid of it, uh, we at the same time understand your greatness now and Jesus is used for our good. There is no other God like our God. We worship, we adore, we praise you. God, I pray for people in this room, afraid of many, many, many things, I'm sure, just like myself. God, would you lift our eyes, even in these moments? Would you let us know something of the fear of the Lord so we know the wisdom that follows, the insight that comes? 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen.